What's up, Eichenberg fans? If you think mountain bike suspension is a mystery, you're not alone. From kinematics to anti-squat to compression ratios, there's a lot of terminology piled on top of designs like VPP, Horselink, CBA, DW-Link. Add CBF to that list, and you have the suspension design and philosophy of Chris Canfield. He's my guest today and has been designing full suspension mountain bikes for almost 25 years. We talk about how things work, why multi-linkage bikes work well, and as well as maybe why some don't work as well as others. And we try really, really hard to explain brake jack and why braking forces negatively affect suspension performance. And after all that, we talk about not one, but two new suspension patents he's working on that are truly wild. And he explains them here publicly for the very first time. Please welcome Chris Canfield. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a while and, you know, just honestly kind of got lazy <laughs> following up since we saw each other at the Taipei Cycle Show earlier this year, but uh, finally making it happen. So we are going to really geek out on suspension. And I just wanted to give people a sense of who you are and, you know, kind of like why we're having this conversation, you know, why they should listen to anything you have to say about suspension. So give me a little background. Like, how'd you get started designing this? Like, who are you? It started when me and my brother started Canfield Brothers in 1999. And in those days, there really wasn't any design software or literature on suspension. And we were kind of just shooting in the dark. And we jumped into the parallel link suspension design stuff immediately. And, you know, we did a lot of trial and error in the beginning, in the early days, like early 2000, 2001 time. There's a lot of stuff you can learn by building prototypes and riding as many bikes as you can get your hands on. And where I came into play with design was when the linkage software came out. I dove right into that like a little ADHD nerd and spent my nights like dissecting everything that was on the program and then riding the bikes I could find and my own stuff and learning between riding and feeling and what the program was saying. And, you know, like just having my own company to put my, you know, ideas into real life is where it really kind of came together. Yeah. When you say parallel link, do you mean like there's an upper link and a lower link that kind of connect the front triangle to the rear triangle? Yeah. I mean, all bikes that are not a single pivot are basically, you know, like I say, a multi-link bike, but I refer to parallel link bikes as, yeah, like maybe not parallel, but they're in the early days, like we were always kind of like a parallel, you know, looking version of them. But basically like two short links with a unified rear triangle. And there's like, like a horse link is a version of that, but the lower link is super long, but your rear end is only, you know, the seat stay at that point. So it's a different kind of option, but I mean, you can design all that stuff basically in the same realm, but it's kind of nice to have a really strong stiff box section that that is from the top to the bottom on the little like small link parallel link bikes 
So you, some of the early stuff from Campfield, and yeah, like speaking of like the, the late 90s and into early 2000s, like there was, I feel like there's a time when the suspension designs, people would try just about anything and there's some really, really crazy stuff when you look back at those days. But I'm curious, like what were your favorites when you were trying all this stuff? You know, like I, I look back, the ones that stick out to me for some reason were, and they weren't all good somewhere, like the Outland VPPs, right? Like those guys, mm-hmm. I think, really made a dent. You know, Ellsworth stuff was really, really good. And then you had stuff like ProFlex, which was a really simple single pivot that actually worked well. I just think their their geometry was kind of bad, even for the time. But um, yeah, like, what did you like? Like, what inspired you? I mean, there was a lot of fun bikes back then. And it was kind of like what's happening right now. I'm seeing all these little tiny brands pop up that have really out of the box, crazy stuff happening. And I think that resurgence, you know, kind of happened because of the COVID bump where everybody started riding bikes and then everybody was like, well, I could probably do a company out of this and do my own thing. And, but in the old days, it it was the same way. There was like these garage shops, which were, that's what we were. You know, we had a shop in the, in the back shed and we were just building our own stuff in-house in America for the first few years, probably, f- well, four years. And, you know, the Brooklyn Machine Works were amazing. My brother had a Carpiel, so we had experience in the early days of, of that bike. I was a big fan of the Cortinas, and Adrian Cortina was racing against us, so it was really fun to have another like you know small guy that was out racing with this on his own bikes you know there was some really good bikes back then but i mean there was mostly just a lot of simple bikes that didn't work well at all (laughs) and obviously there was the i referred to it as the it bike like the bike you had to have if you wanted to win and in those early days you had to have an m1 that bike was so dominant that other brands and, and companies were getting those frames and putting their logos on them. And that's the intense, just uh-huh. right. Yeah. yeah the intense M1. Yeah. That was, if correct me if I'm wrong, because, because I was, I would watch the downhill. You raced it like that was, and you still do. I was more into the cross country at the time. So the M1, that was a horse link, was it not? The early ones were single pivots, and then he licensed um, the horse link, and then it took off. So yeah, it was an early version of the horse link, and I think they did it the best, plus the best looking at the time. And uh, he was one of the early guys to put bearings in the in the suspension, so it became super popular immediately. What were they? What, how were you not using bearings? What was the? Well, we were using that? bearings, but there was a ton of bikes that were bushings, like the Carpiel that my brother had, he had these huge oversized bushings and these links that would slide over the top of these like through axles and then pinch clamp on the top of them and didn't have outside bolts that held on the links at all. You just kind of squeeze the, <laughs> the through axle with the pinch clamps on the links and the oh gosh. huge bushings were underneath them. And he said he would go through a set of bushings in about a week or two and then have to put new <laughs> ones in because it was so wiggly and sloppy. Like, like people s- or, you know, see that on their 
their shock bushings and they have that little clunky clunk feel from the wiggle that kind of wears in. Yeah. I mean, I remember like even the cross country bikes then they would use bushings, but you're talking about much less travel and you know, you, well, in that day, you get the highest like, bushings. Yeah. But that then, did remember, okay. Remember those days, like long travel was six inches. Right. When we started in 99, there was a Yeti and a Trek and a few bikes that were starting to be eight inch, but those, the Yeti and Trek were six inch and everybody else was a four. The UD, or what was it? The RockShock DH. And what was it? The D, Judy DH? It I think it was a, a Judy. Four, it was a four inch elastomer downhill <laughs> fork with a quick release and, you know, cantilever brakes. Right. And I, he had that. My brother had one of those forks and I rode it a lot. And I was like, oh, it was a downhill fork. <laughs> I wouldn't ride that thing now. Oh my gosh, no. Some of the I look at some of those bikes and what people were doing with them, you know, it's scary. Oh I yeah. Mean, and the geometry too. You look at a downhill bike then and like cross country bikes have a slacker head angle now than a lot of those DH bikes did. Oh yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just mind blowing. Our first DHs were 67s. But they were designed around these inverted forks with a big like trail offset that made it feel slacker, but whew, 67. I think people were top 66 at the time. That was nuts. Good times. Yeah, well, we survived. So tell me, you, your designs evolved and, you know, fast forward till today, and your suspension is called the Canfield Balance System. So, like, in a nutshell, what is that? It's really a formula. It can be placed on almost any layout. Um, my Instagram page, Suspension Formulas, it has a few different versions that I've released. Like I have a law wheel version where the instant center is 10 feet behind the bike. I have horse link pulley wheel versions. I have a DW version I'm about to release. I have a VPP version. There's obviously the version you've seen on canceled bikes, then rebel bikes. So what it is, is the, there's, it's kind of complicated to, to explain without giving you the definitions of what's going on. So single pivot bikes, you've got one pivot to your rear axle and an arm in between. There's no like links in between where the rear axle, the rear tire is connected to the front triangle. So a single pivot, let you know, that it's pretty simple and you have, you know, just the one pivot that everything rotates around. And that's even if it's like a Kona that has, you know, shock pushing arms, it's still, if there's only one arm connecting your rear axle to your one pivot on the front triangle, it's a single pivot. So in the multi-link bikes, like horse links, you know, DWs, VPPs, CBF, you know, any of these kinds of bikes, there's two different things that happen. One is the instant center. And instant center is where your four sets of pivots are pointing. So most of the time they point forward unless you're on like a law wheel type bike that points it backwards. And these the instant center is, I like to describe it as the balance point for the chain forces for pedaling. And then there's another thing called the center of curvature. The center of curvature is 
the center of all of the curves of the axle path. And so that could be considered as the real pivoting spot of the suspension because your axle is pivoting around that spot because it's the center of the curve, as the definition says. And so if you think about those two things and you're like, okay, there's two different terms that he just said. Well, both of these things move through space as the bike moves through travel. So if you look at like a specialized horse link bike, the instant center will move six feet, like really far in front of the front fork, and then it will swoop down towards the bottom bracket area, you know, kind of below it, you know, as it cycles through travel. Whereas like a Jedi, it's like a, you know, a small little six inch curve that starts, you know, kind of near the top tube and swings down towards the down tube. Um, so these things move through space. As you can kind of visualize the four pivots or your, your, you know, each side of the, of the links, if you just draw a line in between the pivots, like the lower link two and the upper link two, draw them forward, where that spot intersects is the instant center. And then if you rotate your links, that obviously that spot's going to move around. And so what's is, and you might be getting to this, but like pros and cons of a, a big range of instant center versus a small range. I don't really think there's a big pro or con between those. Um, is it something like as a rider, like what would we feel on say a specialized versus a Jedi? And just for people who don't know the Jedi is Canfield's like downhill bike, right? So just imagine that instant center as like, that's what my chain the upper part of my chain, the chain coming off the cassette going towards my chain ring, that upper line, that's the driving, you know, force line. It's like this like power line of tug of war kind of thing on the rear triangle. And it, it, the, the line, the aim of the chain wants to point. Um, if you're a good designer, you want to point that, that chain at the instant center. Because if you're below it, the, the chain will pull down on the rear triangle. If you're above it, it, or if you're below it, it pulls yeah down. If you're above that spot, then the chain will naturally pull the rear suspension up into travel. Okay. So say it's above it and it's pulling into travel. What does that feel like? That feels like your bike is super squishy when you pedal it like bobbing up and down, bouncing and around. Is, is that kind of how people control like anti-squat and anti-rise then? Or is that so something anti- totally separate? Yeah, the, the term anti-squat refers to the like how well you are aiming at this spot. Okay. And so the the pointing directly at that, that instant center, they call that 100% anti-squat. And if you're below it, it's you know, a higher anti-squat value. So it's like 120, 150. And if you're above it, it will say the number is in the, you know, 80 or 50 or whatever. So it's just like this arbitrary number, hundreds apparently perfect or something. And, but it's just a physics problem of, you know, your chain trying to aim at this balance point for pedaling. Because that's really what it is. It's not the pivot. It's not where your rear axle is rotating. It's this like magical little, you know, balance point for where you want to aim your chain. 
And so most designers are trying to um, aim at this thing, but you can only usually hit it at one spot in the travel. And that spot, of course, you're going to try to hit where where you're designing the bike to sit at SAG. Now, of course, your listeners, at SAG means you are sitting on the bike and it's underneath your body weight. And so that's the SAG point. Usually it's 20 to 35%, somewhere in there. I, I design around 30. I like to sit into my bike, you know, downhill style. A lot of like, I guess, XC guys like to be a little higher, like 20 or 25. I'm not sure why. But I usually design around 30, 33, somewhere around there. So the other term we talked about was center of curvature. Now, center of curvature is kind of the real pivot of the rear axle. But this, this spot also moves. Under multi-link bikes, it doesn't hold still like a single pivot. Isn't that kind of the whole reason for the name VPP, the like virtual pivot point? Because it's... It's it a virtual a virtual one, yeah. Yeah, it moves around. And the cool thing about the multi-link bikes is that you have the ability to move this spot in weird, in different ways. Um, and you'll see, like, some bikes, it moves and then stops and goes a different direction. Like a Jedi will, it'll rotate, like... um in like a line that moves up and forward and then stops and then moves up and back. So it doesn't hold like a consistent line. Sometimes a lot of bikes will hold a consistent line where it moves around, some swoop around, some some move in a big weird thing, but it's just because the the links are not consistently rotating around one spot like a single pivot. And so it can have like an aggressive amount of rearward blow off and then kind of a mellow um, midsection of curve. So think the, the big circle where you're cornering and then an aggressive, like angled, you know, uh, of arcing thing going into sag to kind of give you that rearward bump release feel, but not too radical that you can't corner. So there's a lot of cool options that you can do with the multi-link bikes that single pivots just don't do. And the CBF patent is basically placing the center of curvature in a oval area on top of the chain ring. So it basically says that you are in an area through travel that is half the radius of the chain ring. So like a 32 tooth chain ring is like 64 millimeters in radius. So 32 millimeters away from where the chain intersects the um, chain ring, that circle around where the chain ring intersects. And then as it moves through travel, the chain lifts and, and moves across the top. And so that point moves across a little bit. So that circle becomes kind of an oval shape. And if your center of curvature is in that area on top of the chain ring or on top of a pulley wheel, um, rearward arc bike, then it's basically considered a CBF. And the cool thing that that allows is because the multi-link bike is, you know, the, the arcs of the, of the, of the wheel path are kind of sitting on top of the chain ring area. 
it what it does is it kind of does a teeter-totter effect where I can pivot my chain and my suspension around the same location so they don't fight each other. And on top of that, it's if you think about it balancing on top of the chain ring and your instant center is wiggling in front of the chain ring up and down like six inches, you're trying to follow it through travel. Well, how do you follow it when the chain is moving? Well, you put your pivots where the chain pivots. And so by pivoting where the chain pivots, I can follow that instant center all the way through travel and target it tighter and closer than any other suspension system. And that's why people kind of consider the thing like it has that magic carpet feel. It has the ability to move through travel and not hang up like other suspensions do. They don't kick as much. And it seems to give me that perfect power transfer, the spinning of the wheel and not bobbing or extending the rear triangle, like causing me to lose power or efficiency. Yet it's still able to track the ground as it's doing that. And when you ride one, you're like, wow, that's really efficient. And I look down, but it's moving around. It's like absorbing bumps. And But all I feel like is, is just propelling me forward, feeling very efficient. And that's basically the CBF system. Interesting. The way you explain it, it's um, to just having this, this range of this virtual pivot center seems also like a really brilliant patent filing in that it's it doesn't narrow itself down or niche itself by any particular design. It's just it's just wherever this thing happens to pivot, like you said, you can implement it in a variety of ways. Because I was going to ask you later on about you know the difference between like the Revel bikes and the Canfield bikes because they look different, but it, it seems like the the end result or the end goal is the same. Is to kind of control what you just said. <laughs> that was a lot to repeat. <laughs> yeah, I. The the differences between the two, it's a little bit of compression rate. Um, the Revel guys wanted a little more progressive setup, and they also demanded a water bottle. And so <laughs> the nerve, ugh, it's just crazy talk. Um, which I I fully agree with. Um, the the real like nuts and bolts of, and details of how they're different is they're so close that only somebody I think like me or my brother would be able to feel because that the center curvature on my brothers is I, I tightened it up really tight on about 12 to 1230. So, and it doesn't move across the chain ring very much where the revel, it starts at like maybe 1155 on the clock of the chain ring and rotates across the top of the chain ring about an inch over to, you know, one o'clock, one thirty. So it moves a little bit. It has a different power feel because it kind of like moves that pivot forward as you're leaning forward on the power. You know, you think about your body weight, you know, going from the middle of the bottom bracket at the bottom of the pedal stroke out to 165 or 170 millimeters away from the center of the bottom bracket when you're about to step down on the the downstroke of your pedal stroke. So your body weight is now moving forward quite a bit. And that pivoting motion across the top kind of like 
counterbalances a little bit of that extra weight being forward. But I mean, this is tiny nuanced stuff that nobody feels. Like all they feel is, oh yeah, it just feels like really efficient. This is awesome. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame people. I mean, I, I've been doing this for so long and feeling bikes for so long and, you know, hyper tuning my own body to feel this stuff. So I think that's people, half the battle is knowing what you're, you're trying to feel, right? Like if you just oh, yeah. ride it and it feels good, you're not, you don't really know maybe why. I think most of us don't necessarily know why it's just, you do, you get on some bikes and you're like, yeah, this is good, right? Like this works for me. Yeah. I, I can tell that nobody feels the real nuances of what's going on because I read the reviews. <laughs> I know what that bike does on certain companies and certain suspension designs. And I know what they do under braking and no one talks about it in the reviews. And I'm baffled. Well, it's as a risk of exposing myself as a fraud, because I think no matter how good we all are, like, like every one of us at some level has this imposter, feels a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I'll be at press camps with some of the other folks from other media outlets who, you know, especially the ones that ride more longer travel stuff. And they'll be like talking about this or that, or, you know, pedal kickback and all these other things. And I'm just like, I just rode the same bike you rode. And like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, uh, sometimes I kind of wonder if we make stuff up to like, sound like we know what we're talking about. But <laughs> there are certain things that I just like, I try, like I can bounce some of the bikes I have here and I can see, you know, when it bounces, just like dropping it, the pedals rotate, right? Which is clearly there is an impact of the suspensions movement on that. And I'm like, I do not feel that when I'm riding, even if I hit like a massive square edge bump, I don't feel it pushing my feet forward. I'm just like, am I just dumb or, or are we talking about like just such small nuances that it really takes somebody who's sitting there focusing solely on that to feel this stuff i think it's bigger than what people know they're just so used to riding their own bike or a certain bike that they just get used to that's how a bike feels and a bump feels that they because most people didn't have the background that i had where they're jumping from a bike to a different bike to a different bike during the middle of a run and if you start doing that, you're like, wow, this bike doesn't feel bumpy like the other bike did. Or when I pull the brakes, it's really easy to go down the steep, bumpy stuff. Or that other one just felt really hard to do because it was bouncing me around. And when you start realizing, oh, the bouncing around going down the rocky section is actually the rear end locking up and not absorbing and moving under braking um, or extending under braking. Or the pedal kit can be, I ride clips. I don't feel that my feet are getting kicked around a whole bunch. But if you were riding flats and you rode a bike that was like a pulley wheel bike that neutralizes it versus a, you know, like an old single pivot that has the pivot really far up the down tube that had a excessive amount of kick, then you'd be like, wow, I can't even ride this bike. My feet get thrown off the pedals like every bump I hit. But if I'm on clips and the clips hold me on, it's not so bad. But it's just a matter of like just getting on a whole bunch of different suspension designs and thinking about what is it that I'm feeling between the two and what did the, you know, the people like me say that is going on? Can I feel that or not? 
Um, but I, I don't blame you because being in an industry for the last, oh, geez, was it 24 years now? Um, the more I look around, the more I realize not most people don't feel almost anything going on. What they do feel is if I'm tired or not pedaling, if it's <laughs> efficient or not, because if you're tired going up the hill, they feel that. But the other nuances, like if the rear triangle is flexy or not, or the braking performance or the pedal kick factor, or even what their shock is doing, if it's slow or fast rebound or slow or fast compression, or if their spring weight is too much or too light, they don't feel it. That's why you're always going to your smart friend or your experienced friend going, can you set up my shock? Yeah, I can feel So some of that, like the rebound, especially I do fiddle with my rebound speed a lot. Cause that's, that's the one where I feel like I'm fairly well tuned in, or at least I can tell when I, when I get that right, all of a sudden the bike is like, okay, yes, now it's, now it's doing what I want it to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And rear and flex. I've, there's been one bike in particular. I won't say what it was. Cause they don't, I don't even know if the brand's in business anymore, but it was horribly flexy. Um, Anyway, the uh, so you mentioned kind of the brake impact, and that was actually the last question I had to ask you. So I'm going to jump ahead to that for a second. But can you explain like how like how does brake jack work? Like why do rear braking forces affect a suspension's ability to work? You know, like on a descent. Do you want the honest answer or the textbook answer? <laughs> uh, the honest answer, please. <laughs> All right. Well, let me talk, t- t- tell you first what the textbook says. It's like a calculation off of your instant center and your rear tire patch and a line between that and where the instant center is and where that relates to how they calculate anti-rise, which is kind of about the same position they calculate anti-squat, which is like the rider's belly button horizontally across to the vertical line above the front axle. And that point is like the perfect balanced 100% point. So if it's pointing above it, the bike should like squat down into its travel. And if it's pointing below it, it should extend out of its travel. And if it's pointing straight at that 100% spot, doesn't do either one and it's perfect and good. Which seems impossible because we're constantly moving on the bike too. Now, here's the, the the honest answer. The program is so flawed, and the <laughs> the real thing of those numbers mean absolutely nothing in real life. One of the criticisms we have, or I get for CBF is, well, if the pivot is on the top of the chain ring, why don't you just build a single pivot? And because if you look at like linkage or the design programs, that dissect this stuff, it says that the anti-squat and the anti-rise of those single pivot type bikes with the pivot on top of the chain ring where they should go have similar numbers to what CBF shows. But if you rode them back to back, you would understand immediately that they are light years apart. That one of them is very bobby and inefficient. The other one is a rocket ship. And especially under braking, If the program was right, then we wouldn't have never seen floating brakes and the popularity of multi-link bikes. The same with like the pedaling factor. If single pivot 
acted like a CBF acted, nobody would have developed multi-link bikes because we could have made very simple, lighter, um, simple single pivots. It's just a lot less bearings. I mean, that's six less bearings on a bike. That's yeah. That's there's a, there's a lot a of linkages and bearings in a like the Revel bike, for example. <laughs> yeah, and if you look at these new six bar, I mean, that's and and this not just six bar, but like the bikes that have like a shock compression, like little scissor link, like the new you know specialized enduro and the canyons, um, you know that that new downhill bike from from Intense. They're, they're putting two pieces of CNC and eight extra bearings on top of the eight that they have. So they have 16 bearings instead of two. So the, the, the real deal of the, the physics behind the idea of anti-squat, anti-rise is not really applicable to real life. It's a good starting point in my mind. It shows me what I know can happen and how to make them right. But I think it's a lot more of a physics problem with the chain and where it's pointing at that instant center. Because like you said, we're not riding on flat static ground. And that's what the calculation in the programs is based on, is flat ground riding. So if you're going up a hill, all of a sudden that person's belly button is a lot further and you know behind the the, the spot that it was calculated on flat ground. Same with going downhill. And it's calculating an arbitrary belly button spot that could very well be not the spot that you are on your belly button. Like, that doesn't mean almost anything. It's like, it's a mass transfer calculation for vehicles. And we're in a, like, an undulating, human-powered thing that bounces around. So, the the stuff with braking, it... It has a lot more to do with a bike having a multi-link to isolate the the rear axle mounting to an arm that's not connected to the front triangle directly. Because the braking forces like seem to lock up or cause a single pivot under braking to just not feel good. They but just, why? Like, why is that? That's what I, I, I think don't it's understand. because it's it the the forces are connected to the one arm, so it affects the one arm. By having links in between that one arm, it can rotate on the 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 links that are in front of it. It can like twist and rotate and be open to rotate. Whereas the the single pivots, they they put the force right into the arm and that force is directly connected to that front triangle and it has nowhere else to go. So when you, when you say force, I'm like, I'm imagining it's, I mean, there's, well, just imagine pulling your brake. Like there's right. a whole bunch of friction and stopping forces that like all of a sudden you're stopping the back wheel. And so that rotational force goes somewhere. Okay. And, and it's so like, literally, if you have the caliper, like, let's just say the caliper's mounted perfectly flat on a chain stay and that, that rotor's coming into it at like a 45 degree angle where, where the pads are, are you basically then shooting forces at 45 degrees forward, you know, downward and forward from the axle? That's what they say. I'm not sure how much the caliper on the rotor position has to do with it. I've heard it could be like really advantageous. 
you know, honestly, there was a funny, uh, test that I did in the early 2000s when we had an inverted fork from the brand Rissy. And it, this brand was, they're still around doing stuff. I, I saw them at a bike show this last year and was like, oh, you guys are still alive. Cool. Um, but they had an in, inverted fork where I could take out the left leg and put it in the right side. And so I could mount my brake caliper on, and just turn my front wheel backwards and put the rotor on the right side and the brake caliper on the right side, which put it in the front instead of in the back. But if you looked at the forces, it would throw the forces down instead of up because on the left side, it stops the rotor in that spot on the back, which would throw the forces perpendicular off of the rotor, throwing the forces, compressing your fork. Well, right. why don't we put them on the right side and and throw the forces the other direction and push them down and lift our forks up so we don't have brake dive. And I honestly didn't feel that big of a difference. I was like, now it's just kind of vulnerable and, you know, going to get hit by rocks. Um, I can blow up a brake pod that way. But so I don't, I'm not sure how much that actually comes into play. I've heard people talk that it has a lot more to do with it. But in my experience, it has more to do with um, the general layout of the the angles of your links on a multi-link bike because some multi-link bikes lock up. There's a a certain angle of an upper link that if you just kind of visualize, you know, the braking forces, you know, the bumps are hitting the front of the tire and pushing the, the tire backwards while you're hitting them. And if a link is in a certain you know, rotation, it can just pull the link to top out and lock up the suspension. Hey, real quick, I wanted to let you know this Bike Rumor podcast is brought to you by The Pros Closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride. From top brands to niche names, TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 And now back to our episode. This Bike Rumor podcast was brought to you by The Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, The Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel with available financing and competitive pricing. TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 So I'm imagining, you know, like you hitting a bump in the rear, you know, because I think the, at least from what I've heard, the ideal axle path is a slightly rearward one, mm -hmm. which almost seems like as the wheel is going up and back, let's just imagine that at a 45 degree angle. And then the braking force is coming, basically opposing that almost perfectly. Is that just like you have these two forces kind of fighting each other and like, is that what's making it so that the suspension, that the suspension doesn't want to work as well when you're braking? It's, it's really hard to say. It really is like, I've never been on a single pivot that where the calipers, you know, mounted on that one arm where the suspension didn't just like, you know, extend and lock up. 
I've ne- even on a bike that was a rearward wheel path pulley wheel single pivot, you know, thinking that, oh, well, the wheel path will allow it to, the bumps to push it into travel and absorb and be neutral-ish or at least like squat down. And there was a pink bike article that single pivots don't break jack. They actually break squat. And I, I read through that and I thought that was the biggest bunch of bull. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this guy, I don't know what he's thinking. Um, because they, they just don't track the ground under braking like a multi-link bike does. And they'd be a lot more popular if they did, but that's why we had floating brakes in the early times. And I mean, even on um, Danny Hart's bike, he's still running a floating brake this season in the World Cup. How does that, well, maybe just for people who aren't familiar with the floating brake, like maybe you could explain that super quick, but then also like, how does that solve the problem? Well, it takes where the brake is mounted. So a floating brake is like a CNC piece that is, it's like a brake mount that fits between the frame and the hub. So instead of the the mount being on the frame, they take the mount and put it on like this CNC plate kind of like arm piece. And that goes in between the hub and the frame. And so the brake caliper where it's squeezing the rotor is now not attached to your frame at all. It's attached to this, this piece that's kind of like rotating around the rear axle. And then on that arm, they have a long tube that bolts to it with like a pivot and then extends to the front triangle and then mounts with like a like a, a, a pivot spot there so it can kind of wiggle and move around. Um, so the braking forces are completely isolated from the swing arm. And that kind of explains why single pivots and the the caliper spot theory i think doesn't work because you know when when you take a a brake caliper and completely remove it from the rear triangle and it's basically being held into place with its own floating like cnc part that is connected with a, a rod for a better term or lack of a better term directly to the front triangle it takes your braking forces completely off of the swing arm. And the swing arm then is allowed to move through travel, absorb bumps, even under hard, heavy and hard braking, and work really, really well. And of all systems, I think that is the most ideal for performance. I think that's why um, Danny Hart has it on his cube, um, even though the cube is a horse link and should actually track the ground and brake quite well. But it gives that extra bit of isolation and an extra bit of no interference with, you know, your suspension to move under bumps, you know, and if you're on the World Cup and every little micro thing, you know, matters. And if you're Danny Hart and can demand it, you can make him do it. Right. So I think that's really the key there is that, you know, the multi-link bikes are kind of doing what a floating brake does by having two pieces of CNC or two links in between where the brake is mounted. It's on this arm or a, a, a rear triangle that's not connected to the front triangle directly. It has two different moving links to like 
when the breaking forces act on that rear triangle, it can kind of like rotate into travel and move freely with it. I think the the big thing about caliper placement is just being in the range where wherever the spot is, it kind of follows with the wheel path. And so when it's going through travel or when you're under braking, the, the brake caliper and the wheel path can follow each other and it still doesn't fight the the rear swing arm moving through travel absorbing bumps. Because if it's in a different spot and it doesn't track the, the same direction and articulation as the wheel path, it'll fight each other. It'll like want to do something with the rear wheel that the suspension doesn't want to do. And, you know, you just kind of want to line all that stuff up. Okay. I've got some other stuff we're going to talk about later that, so we might revisit this in a second. Okay. But let's, let's go back uh, to where we were. So when you're thinking of a new suspension design, like let's say, you know, well, you kind of have what you're doing with Canfield and Rebel. Let's say a new bike brand comes to you and says, hey, we want to use the CBF, you know, like where do you start? Are you looking at axle pass, spring curve? Like what's the first thing you have to think about? Well, with with a customer, I'll I'll basically dial in like, you know, wh- what are you looking to do? What what kind of bike do you want? How do you want it to look? Because you know, a, let's face it, people buy on fashion. They don't really care how a bike performs. They really want it to just look cool. And if their bike looks cool, they're happy. They'll buy it, and the company will be successful. So I I dial in. Hey guys, what are you looking to look like? You know, these are the options that I have in my back pocket because I've pretty much laid out as many different layouts as possible. And, you know, that's why I have a few on my Instagram because I try to just like tease out like this is possible. This is not just what my brother did at CBF or at Canfield. That's not the only one that we have. You know, I have like all sorts of different versions. It's a formula. It's not just, you know, the balance frame or the, or the lithium frame. So I actually have a new client that I just signed a couple months ago. It's a company called Flow. They've only done little kid hardtails so far. And they came to me and said, we want to get into adult bikes. We want to do an enduro race bike. And we just kind of went through the process of like, hey, like I have a VPP version we could do. I have uh, a DW horse link version we could do. We have the traditional one like my brother's doing. Um, we ha- I have one that's like, a, you know, a law will that you could do. And I kind of just threw it at them like, which one of these would you like? Because we can do any of them. What and do you like all, the looks of? <laughs> yeah, what they'll all perform very similar. You know, or I can get them to perform in the way that you like. Because compression rate is outside of how braking and pedal performance works in, you know, it's a personal preference. If you want a really progressive bike, we can do that. If you want more on the linear side, kind of the side I like, we can do that too. So just let me know where you want to end up and I'll I'll design around that. How have your designs changed as cassettes have gotten larger? Because I imagine there's, you know, the increase in chains, position, and torque that comes from a 10-tooth cog all the way up to a 52-tooth cog must impose some real challenges with, you know, things like anti-squat and anti-rise, no? Oh, yeah. Um, 
it's not as bad as you think because everyone's dealing with the same problem. And in the beginning, we talked about the chain really needs to like point and focus at that instant center spot to be efficient. So if it's extremely um, below that spot, it'll it'll tug down on the back wheel a bunch and give you like a lot of pedal kick, but a very like punchy, efficient pedal feel, especially on smooth ground, like the parking lot test or up a dirt road. Um, so the, the bigger cogs in the back, it's not so bad because you're not really downhilling in your 50 tooth cog in the back. You're in your middle cassette or your lower part of your cassette. And that those parts of the cassette give you less chain stretch usually. And where the upper side really does. Um, and the good thing about CBF is it, I can narrow down the instant center and tighten that movement a lot. And so the, the range of missing it is almost zero because it's so narrowed down. When the range is gigantic, it's really hard to, to follow that instant center through the cassette. So I'll have, I'll usually design, um, a downhill bike to be perfect in like the 15 tooth the fast cog that you ride most often in because racing it's like you have your out of the the gate gear that's usually like a 20 21 and then you drop to an 18 and then you drop to your 15 or or so and that's the main gear you're in most of the time until you do the two fast sections and where you drop to the last two so i'll design the gravity type enduro or downhill bike to be exactly money perfect in those ones and then you hit small variances each direction in the higher and lower parts of the cassette but then you got like more pedal version bikes that someone's going to be in the 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 pedaling mode a lot more like a down country or a, a smaller travel bike where it's a lot more pedal focused and then i'll i'll focus the the perfection to be a little higher in the cassette so that people have like an unbelievably punchy, you know, climbing feel in and out of the saddle in, you know, that upper thirties and forty tooths of the cassette area. So that their their bike is like, oh yeah, this thing is just crazy money even in there. Is it possible to optimize for both where, you know, like I'm thinking like a like a, a trail bike, you're right, like that middle travel where, you know, or even I, I would think Although you're not raising uphill, like even an enduro bike, right? You have to climb these big stages and then you're descending where, you know, like you're climbing, you don't want it to be all, you know, bobby and feel like you're wasting all this energy. But like, can you, can you change that anti-squat as? As you go based, or on yeah, the fly Yeah, as you go up something? the cassette. Well, no, not on the fly, but like, yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess that would be tough because you're, you're kind of optimizing for maybe like shorter travel in the bigger chain ring or bigger cogs. I mean, you know, where you're probably climbing and then more travel in the smaller ones. So I guess you could theoretically, right? Yeah. It's, it's and <laughs> sure. the cool thing about CBF is that it's so tight in the, in the cassette range where most bikes, if you think about, they will only sweep into that perfect spot only on the sag point where the CBF, you can like, be in a perfect pedaling spot from 20 to 80 percent 
you know, in any spot that you're pedaling. If you're in a G out or if you're, you know, your sag's not not that deep because you're running a heavy spring or if you're or if you're heavy, running a light spring, it all of those things like are so, you know, like not affected in CBF land because everything is going to the chain ring. Your chain is always going to that chain ring spot. And the instant center is always kind of like rotating in front of it. So, you know, it's only in small like areas of the bottom of the travel, top of the travel in the, in the very far reaches of the cassette that it's missing it a little bit. But those nuances, you don't really need them there. And truthfully, like it's so efficient and, and it's such a broad range of, of stuff that it's, it just feels good no matter what is going on. When you're designing a bike, like, you know, let's, I'm just going to use Revel cause I've, I've ridden one of their bikes and I, you know, it's a lot of people are familiar with it, but so when you design one and you say, okay, here's where the pivot point needs to go or all the pivot points need to be the length of the linkages and all this stuff, right? You hand them, here's the blueprint. Now you guys design your bike so that these points are all where they need to be in space. Like how, where do you hand that off in terms of like the, the design? Because I, you know, I'm looking at like the rail that I've ridden. Um, there are a lot of linkages. There's a lot of bearings, a lot of pivot points. So is it, are you giving them guidance on how to make all that work and be like structurally sound in terms of stiffness and durability, or is that entirely up to them at that point? Honestly, it's, it should be. Should be I mean, which te- one? <laughs> I mean, technically I, 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 I sell where to put your pivots and you know, your, your, your shock location. And then yeah, it's uh, the rest of the stuff is on you. But because I've built bikes for so long and I usually end up with clients like, like flow and, and revel that are startups or young companies that are, that aren't experienced in, in this stuff. I want them to be successful. So I jump in with unsolicited construction advice <laughs> all the time, all the time. Well, a little much. I even tell them, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll be like, you know, giving you suggestions and things I think you should do or, and the, the truth is, is that it's like an ongoing like massage because as much as it's, it looks like you know, you just slap some pivots in a seat tube and everything is fine. It's a really hard puzzle to make everything fit because that seat tube and your tire and the clearance of everything is a, is a struggle. And so a lot of times we end up with, oh man, I need to move like this pivot front or back because I can't get my tire clearance with the geometry that I want. So can we move it? And then we'll be back and forth with a design a whole bunch of times. And I, I love like, they at least allow me to give suggestions. Um, like in the beginning with Revel, I was beating him over the over the head with use big bearings, use big bearings. Look what we did. Look what all the other little parallel link bike companies did, like Pivot and Santa Cruz. They're all using big bearings. There's a reason use big bearings. And now that they did their first rounds, they're like, okay, we'll use big bearings. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So, you know, I it's kind of one of those things I let them do what they need to do to be their own company. And, and, but I'll, I'll jump in and give as much um, consulting advice and construction advice and general, just use me as a, a sounding board because I've been around the game enough to, 
you know, just to have a, a, a opinion for them to at least like, does this sound okay? Should we do this? And I'll give my two bits of whatever. So I remember when one by drivetrains for mountain bikes came out and, you know, one of the secondary selling points was that suspension could now be better frame designs because you're not limited by having to fit a front derailleur in there anymore. Right. So like, Oh yeah. I mean, how did that change what you were doing? Oh, it was amazing. We were, we were building suspension designs so that we could have the 20 tooth granny gear work. And, you know, try to make the 32 tooth that you jump to in your middle ring. Well, it was usually a two by that to work as well. And so, especially with the little link, um, multi-link bikes, they have a tendency to, you know, the smaller the, the lower link or upper link are, the more they move through the arcs of, of the curves. You know, it's like, so they can go bad really, really fast. You know, it was in the early days, it was really hard to make them work well. And nowadays you're, you're seeing like a lot of, you know, past people's mistakes be learned by these companies and the programs and the advice that's on the internet about how to do this. But in the early days, like there was some wonky stuff. Like you'd find bikes inchworming in granny gear. You'd stand up and pedal and it would, it would pull the whole bike to top out and you would feel like you're pulling your bike like a little inchworm down the trail if you were out of the saddle. So in those days, we did like a really long lower link. We called it the one suspension. And we almost did a licensing deal with a brand called Versus Cycles in 2008. And sadly, they went out of business the next year after we signed our licensing deal because the you know housing crash happened. And so lots of the companies in that time period went out of business and he was one of them. Shout out to Herb. Miss you, buddy. But the, the, when the one buys came out, oh, that was a godsend because you could really focus on designing around the one ring that you were going to use instead of two. And it made it a lot more specific on how you could design around that one specific chain ring and, and it would be awesome. So what do you think is next, right? Like, is there some big advancement in drivetrains or brakes or anything else that you think could be another game changer for suspension performance? Oh gosh. I mean, people talk about like the gearbox thing or, you know, but there's been so much weight that you add to the gearbox or, or the drag that happens in gearbox. And after seeing the pinion e-bike motor come out at Eurobike this year, I was like, Whoa, both those problems are gone. You know, that's that's a pretty exciting product. It really is. I'm on team Shimano and have been for, Oh, since 2020. And I keep bugging those guys like, Hey, are you guys got something mixed like this? Because this is, what everybody's going to want. That's what I want. As soon as I saw it, I was like, no more blowing up drivetrains on an e-bike and the weight and the drag aren't a problem on an e-bike and everything is in the little box down at the bottom. Like, this is great. Like, this is as close as we're going to get. Like, as far as like acoustic bikes, I mean, derailers are awesome. And that new UDH stuff that's, you know, mounting around the rear axle and the frame 
instead of a misaligned or misplaced hanger position, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. And when that came out, that was really neat. The fact that it has a a blow-off rotational thing to it as well, that's pretty neat. But I don't see, I mean, the bike industry is this like little passion niche industry where nobody's making gigantic money. The the margins are tiny. Everybody that actually works in the industry makes, you know, salaries that are a, at least a third less than regular jobs. It's it's totally a passion industry. You do it because you love it, not because you want to get rich. Yeah, you're you're definitely not making bikes because you're going to be a rich guy. No, it's it's because this is what you love. And so there's tons and tons of, you know, inventions and, and movement in that regard with, with all this stuff. You know, I don't see how much better we can get the, the cassette derailleur, you know, bicycle system that we have is one of the most efficient things we've ever invented. It is really cool to use human power that way. And, you know, derailleurs are tough now. You know, with a with that narrow wide chainring, oh, that was one of the coolest things of all time. <laughs> to not have you know chain guides be the ultimate you know reliability to keep your chain on, that changed the world really. And that was an old thing. Like the narrow wides were, you know, even back in like the eighteen ninety nineteen hundred early time, and they just kind of resurged them. So I, I wonder I, if there's anything else that'll come out, but I don't see anything like that in the future. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is there's this really interesting patent filing we found about a suspension, suspension concept you designed that puts the bottom bracket inside that lower linkage. And I was hoping you could kind of explain that. Oh, good. You didn't see my other one. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Back, back to the USPTO site. <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I have a second round prototype of the other one. Okay. Which is kind of the holy grail thing and uh, as good as it gets. The one you're referring to is what I dubbed on my website, which, sorry, everybody, I could care less about my website. <laughs> I'm too busy riding my bike and snowboarding. So, but what I, what I dubbed it is CF0. Because basically, kind of like the old iDrive and uh, the Maverick bike, they they did a similar thing. And what the patent is, is basically a version of those systems where I'm patenting a multi-link version of, you know, a, a bike with with your bottom bracket that moves with the with the suspension. And it's not a URT where it's on the single pivot you know, kind of being like a Walmart bike. It's, it's in a a isolated lower link. And I have in the patent drawings, basically every version of a suspension layout just to give examples. But what it, what the real concept behind that is, is that you can have a rearward arc bump releasing wheel path, but do it without a pulley wheel. Because everybody knows climbing a bike that has a pulley wheel is not the most ideal. You're dragging a chain up and over an isolated cog, not directly to the front chain ring. And so that extra like bending up and over a cog, it's not awesome. 
it's okay. I've done it a ton. I, I have a new model with it. Um, I work with them a lot. I've ridden a pulley wheel bike since the year 2000. But, you know, most people are focused on climbing, not gravity sports like I am. And rearward travel is awesome for for holding momentum and, you know, smoothness on trail and holding, you know, just basically holding speed. And after riding a, a Maverick for a lap and, and a few of the different um, iDrive GT bikes from the old days, those bikes were awesome, but, you know, the GTs were single pivots, so they didn't have good braking. And they locked up and they had you know, a, con- a construction that was not exactly the everyone's favorite look. And with this one, it just allows, you know, the, the bottom bracket to follow the wheel path just enough to take care of that chain stretch, but not so much that you feel it. It only moves just a little bit because, I mean, if, you're, if your rear wheel moves back 19 mil, that's like a big rearward wheel path bike now. And that's not even an inch of movement. So you can move your bottom bracket, you know, up and back a little bit to accommodate the chain stretch that would happen and move it back. Say you do like a 10 mil or a 12 mil rearward bump release type of bike. That's kind of like what a mid pivot one would be, but you would have just a little bit of rearward movement in the pedals versus getting kicked in the feet with chain stretch and, and uh, pedal kick. And for your listeners, uh, the reason why we get chain stretch pedal kick, the same thing, it's the rear axle is moving away from the bottom bracket. And so your cassette is holding the chain and it grabs the top of the chain and yanks backwards like a, like a tug of war and rotates your, your chain ring backwards and it kicks your feet because the bump just like slammed the rear wheel, the rear wheel just yanked on the chain and then rotated the cranks back a a certain amount of degrees and that kicks your feet so instead of having your feet get kicked up and down they'll move back and forth a little bit with the movement instead and it really feels smooth it just has like a little bit of front to back wiggle that after riding the those two other bikes i was like this is really awesome because it pedals and sprints crazily strong because you have a little bit of that body weight standing on the lower link as well so it kind of like resists the link from moving when you're really smashing on it and but it seems to still allow for movement and tracking and bump release without the pulley wheel problem so it's basically like having a rear bike without a pulley wheel so it sprints really well it climbs really well and it doesn't have that weird pulley wheel that people don't like but it still gives you all that rearward bump release stuff that is really awesome. All right. How are you going to, like, I imagine that there's going to be some upward movement as well when you hit a bump, that it's going to shorten the distance, you know, the effective distance between the saddle and the bottom bracket. So if you're seated, you're going to be constantly changing that, you know, your your pedal, your leg extension. But then even standing, it's going to take away some of the suspension's effect. So you're going to feel the the ground bumps a little bit more than you would on a fully or you know yeah i mean if you compare like a a pulley wheel bike bike is going to isolate a lot better the the 
the pedal kick because there won't be any movement in the bottom bracket and your feet can be pretty isolated and that's pretty awesome. But at the same time, you don't really want to pedal that bike up a hill. And so you kind of like look at like, what's the compromise that I want? I still want rearward arc, but I don't really want to pedal up a hill with the pulley wheel. And, you know, riding the GT or riding that Maverick, it was like, both of these don't suck. (laughs) These things are pretty awesome. Like, like when I rode the Maverick, I went, this thing feels like a Jedi, but it doesn't have a pulley wheel and I can sprint it on flat ground. This is fucking awesome. But their construction was like no upper link, a shock instead. You know, their custom, you know, in-frame shock that, you know, was taking all the side load and had problems because of that. So just being able to see the real estate in the patent office that like, oh, there's a multi-link version of this that hasn't been applied for or done. So let's throw it into the patent office, see if I can grab it. Okay. And I, yeah, there is a little bit of movement, you know, that you're, that you would probably perceive, but we're not talking a lot. You know, like you remember when GT and Mongoose, they were both doing one and the Mongoose had like an extreme amount of bottom bracket movement. And when I rode that one, it was like the Eric Carter downhill bike version. The bottom bracket moved so far rearward that it felt like your hands moved forward through the corners. It was like your handlebar moved forward two inches. Your feet didn't feel like they moved. It felt like your handlebars moved. And it was like, all of a sudden I'm going to move into the, you know, the, the corner and I'm smashing through and all of a sudden my hands like kind of push out in front of me. And I was like, well, that's just too much. I was like, okay, we can just dial that back to where it's not so excessive because that one had like, I don't know, I can't remember exactly the rearward, but it was probably in the 45 millimeter range. Oh, wow. It was a lot. That's a lot. But riding the GT and watching like, you know, Steve Pete and you know, Fabian Burrell and I think, was it Atherton? I can't remember if Atherton was on there. Anyway, they were for a while. Yeah. Yeah. These, all these guys were racing that GT, you know, I drive downhill bike that had that same thing and they were winning races, doing really well on, you know, bumpy downhill type stuff. And their feet were moving with that, you know, bottom bracket in the link, pushing the shock. And I was like, it was the eye link, the little dog bone, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like a single pivot with a link, you know, being pulled by another little little guy link, basically compressing the shock. And their their bike wasn't excessive rearward like the mongoose was. And so it was like, just don't go crazy with the amount of rearward you do. And this would actually work really well. And so I was like, well, if we can get that pedaling feel and that bump release feel, but just have good braking on top of it, this should be a home run. Yeah, I'm really excited. Okay. I don't have a prototype of it yet because I've been working on my other one. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had built something and ridden it, but let's let's talk about this other one. What's what's the other one? The other one is goddamn as good as it gets. <laughs> what's that one called? Uh, that was the CF3. Okay, and I don't have pictures online. I've been I've had one in working model for about two years. I just did an update to the rear triangle for construction stuff like UDH, some router stuff. And what it is, is a, oh, geez, how do you describe it? It's like my website says, it's not a quiver killer. It's the whole quiver. (laughs) 
Nice. So the patent revolves around multi pivots on your frame. So there's the application shows basically just like I said, every kind of configuration you can do. And the one that I have is a horse link with a sessions layout, you know, the shock sitting in front of the seat tube, you know, basic horse, horse link. But I have three main lower pivots and it basically I can pull the main suspension axle with, you know, an Allen key, slide the axle out, pull the chain stay back and then move it up to like the next hole, put the the pivot back in. And I have two different versions of that bike. One is a downhill and one is enduro focused. And the enduro one is with a 65 stroke. It's a 140, 160, and 190 bike. Dang. The, the upper two holes have a pulley wheel. And the lower one, you remove the pulley wheel and I have a little storage spot on the main axle pin on the other side that it just, you know, stores it over there. And it's like, I just pull the, the pulley wheel off with one bolt and I take my main pivot axle out and just move it and put it back into the ideal pulley position. Cause there's like, three pulley positions on it, depending on chain ring or which hole you're in. And so I have a 190 rearward arc at 19 millimeters of rearward for downhilling. And then I can drop it to the middle hole and it's a vertical-ish wheel path. It's like negative 10 back to zero at 160. And it has a pulley wheel, like a low pulley wheel setup. And then when I pull the, the suspension down to the lowest hole, it's in line with the chain ring at 140. And so it has no pulley wheel. So you have basically a trail bike, an enduro bike, and a downhill bike all in one frame. Hmm. And the compression gods gave me the biggest gift of all time. And nobody believes me, so I had to start building them. So that's why I have prototypes, because I was like, this is too big, it's too complicated. And everyone I tell, you know, when I tell people about what it can do, they just don't believe me. They're like, no way that could work. It's got to have so much compromise. It'd just be garbage. And you'd have to do all this stuff like change your spring weight and all that. I don't change my spring. It jumps maybe 15 pounds in difference or 20. So ideally, if you had like, I ride for Owens as well. And they have that three position compression switch. It's not a lockout. It's just a little bit and a little bit more. And that's enough to basically give me all three of those travel settings without having to change my spring. Is the that, only time coil spring then? I coil guess. spring. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been riding this have so to, long. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you'd have to uh, change your fork, obviously. You're going to put a different fork on for all that. It's not like you're doing this mid-trail on one ride. I probably. do. Um, so two years ago at National Champs, I was racing at Winter Park and the first three of the four tracks were really pedally and normal kind of down, you know, like enduro pedal tracks, kind of bike park or pedally. So I had it in the 160 mode 
And the fourth track was on the downhill. So it's like gnarly, rough, a, a, a full proper downhill track. And when I got to the top, I hit up my buddy, Ryan Rodriguez. And I was like, Ryan, can you hold my bike for a second? He's like, why? And I go, watch. <laughs> and I pulled the, pulled the pulley wheel off, pulled my main pin, put it up in the upper hole, put the pin in, put the pulley wheel on with, with two bolts. In about two minutes, I had a 190 downhill bike. And he was like, what did you just do? And I go, I just converted this from a 160 Enduro to a 190 River Dark downhill bike. He goes, what? And then I squashed the bike and he goes, holy shit. And I was like, watch this. And I caught like four people on that lap because I was in, you know, old guy master's class. And honestly, I wasn't in the group. I was like super slow to get up there because I'm such a bad peddler. And I was like one of the back of the back, like almost at the cutoff. But it's so cool to be like, oh, the, this track is smooth and I need to sprint for a while. And this track is kind of medium. I could use a regular 160, but there's a bunch of enduro tracks where, you know, it'd be nice to get to the top and be like, I have a full, full gun downhill bike now. All right. So what fork are you running with that kind of? So ideally with that bike, I either have a 180 or a 170 on there because 140, 170 isn't bad. That's pretty okay and kind of normal. 160, 170 is, is what almost everyone races on anyway. And then the Geo doesn't really change that much because the way I do mine on this model is I don't change Geo when I move. Like I, I rotate around the horse link pivot so it doesn't change the Geo at all. Hmm. And then I just have like, you know, a 170 or 180 fork on the front as I have a 190 rear arc bike in the back. But at the same time, it's really nice to just go, okay, I have one bike. I can have, because lots of people talk about this all the time. Like, yeah, I have this bike. And I'm like, do you ever had a downhill bike? And he's like, I'd love to have a downhill bike, but I can only have one. I can only afford one. And I'd love to race downhill, but I only have this little bike. And I hear that all the time. And I'm like, uh, it's coming. You can just have a spare fork and a spare front wheel. And then you have all the bikes you need. Yeah. So what do you do with all that extra chain? Because, I mean, most high-pulley bikes, they have a much longer chain. I mean, uh, the ones with the idler, you know, they've got a much longer chain to add that length and go up and over. That's actually a big misconception. Some do, the ones that have really high pivots. And the thing that a lot of people miss is that because they have a pulley wheel, they don't have any chain stretch. And so you can actually run your chain system really tight hmm. on your big cog in the back because there's not a whole bunch of slack that the pulley wheel or the rear derailleur is picking up. Right. And so you can run it kind of tight. And hmm. with my bike that I've had for a couple of years, and like I said, I got new protos just came in. The lowest hole, sometimes I'll do a couple of turns of B tension because only in the like 11 tooth will it be a little saggy if I don't sit on it. And so to like pull the sag out of the chain, I just turn the, the B tension a couple of turns to like tighten that back up. And that's because I'm on a, you know, full size enduro cassette. But literally between all of them, that's, that's all I have to do is just a couple of turns of B tension. And Usually if I jump from the upper hole to the lower hole, I'll turn maybe one click of rebound 
because of the difference in spring fill. And that's it. Interesting. And then like, I know it's crazy and no one believes me, but that's literally why I'm building them. Because when people get on these and go, holy crap, I can just change in between them all and it just runs good. It just feels good. So do you have a, a partner for this that's going to turn it into a real bike or, you know, is this something Flow's going to use or? Nope, nope. Flow is actually, the funny thing is the bike that I'm referring to that I'm building, it's, I just, I'm stacking patents on it left and right because I, <laughs> I tuned the upper hole and the lower hole with CBF because I own it and I don't have to pay for it. And then it has the new patent pending CF3. And then I licensed iTrack, which iTrack suspension is basically a pulley wheel that's mounted on a multi-link bike that's mounted on a moving member, like Hmm. a link or a swing arm. And so because it was like easier construction and it gives the a little bit of tug down, kind of like the CF0 thing, like the bottom bracket in the in the lower link that gives like body tension to the, to the pedal system, that little bit of body tension on the pulley wheel, um, helps like, you know, pull down mechanically the, the rear wheel to make the pedaling even more efficient. Hmm. And the middle hole doesn't have CBF on it. So it really helps to have that eye track on it. So on, on my chainstay on my new prototypes has CF three plus CBF plus eye track. And I'm like, if you counted the horse link, that'd be four suspension patents on this bike. Freaking nuts. Yeah. But, and I, you- I don't have a partner right now. I, I'm just solo. You know, I have connections in Asia since I was there for most of my 30s. You know, my old factory is doing it for me. And they're like, oh, you and your crazy stuff. And they don't know what it is. They just think, yeah, it's just a funky thing with some weird holes in it. Right. And most people that have seen it, they don't really understand what it is because I don't tell them. And only Narcouch has asked me the right questions. And before this podcast, I haven't talked about it at all. Okay. Well, I'd love to show some pictures of it in the, if you want to send something over. It'll, it'll be released in the next little bit. All right. I, I, I got bikes in just a couple of days ago. I drove down from BC just to like pull them out of the box. So I'm still in the mode of like pulling them, pull the packaging off and disassembling, looking at everything, going to get pictures. So all that stuff will happen the next little bit. Very cool. I'll put it on um, my Instagram and a link to the the brand because I haven't released that yet as well. Okay, so you do have a brand that's going to run with this, or is it yeah, your brand? It's mine. And oh wow, that's as funny exciting. as the name is, it's it's one of those like, huh? But at the same time, it works for what I what I want because I'm building a steel front triangle or a titanium front triangle with aluminum rear. Because I'm a big fan of how a full suspension steel front triangle bike rides. Because, you know, just like a spring, steel in the front triangle gives you like vertical compliance, like softness and smoothness, especially on a full suspension. You're riding fast, like enduro or gravity, like downhill. Like the front end of your bike moves a lot. And it doesn't like, like a carbon bike or a really thick, rigid aluminum bike, they don't move as much. And so, all that trail, you know, impacts and vibration just go into your body. Where when you're riding a steel front triangle bike, it is smooth sailing. Like a lot of times I'll stop and be like, do I have 10 pounds of pressure in my tires? Like I feel all mushy. And then I'm like, oh, right. It's just my frame that does this. It's my tires are nice and hard. 
But most people haven't experienced that yet since most full suspension steel bikes are heavy donkey turd buckets. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's face it, they're mostly just the single pivots. There's not been a lot of companies that have been able to pull off a multi-link, you know, steel, steel bike. And a lot of them still used a steel rear end, which is quite heavy. So, and my bike is sitting at 10 pounds in frame weight without shock. So I'm right there with, with most downhill bikes and, you know, a lot of even carbons these days. Interesting. But I don't, I don't want to build a six pound carbon bike. Yeah. Let somebody else do that. I mean, six pound, you're at like, you know, that's trail bike. Weight. Yeah. Th- yeah. And I mean, I obviously have a trail bike setting on this, but I think there's people that are appreciate like a bike that they can really ride tough that they don't ever have to worry about, you know, they can go to the dirt jumps on, they can go to the bike parks on and they can be like, Oh, if I want to enduro race, I want a downhill race. I'm ready to go. Plus like my enduro bike at worlds last year at trophy of nations was 38 pounds with the dual crown. Hmm. I took a 180 Olin's dual crown over there. Cause I know I can ride a dual crown faster than I can ride my single crowns. Cause I'm a dork and haven't ridden a single crown for crap. And <laughs> I, I contacted them and they were like, I have a 180 and it has a 15 mil custom drilled lower axle. And I was like, Oh, that's perfect. So I can run enduro wheels front and rear. So I don't have to have a different, you know, downhill front wheel with a, a 20 mil axle there. And the, the guy over there, Jake was like, yeah, I just had this custom done and, I actually bugged him this year to have another one sent to me because he, he made me send it back. <laughs> I was like, you got to give me one of those so I can have one wheel set, you know, and one backup wheel set and have it be the same for my enduro um, setup and my downhill setup. And then I could just carry one fork in my van, one bike and a couple of wheel sets and I have everything I need to do. Nice. Awesome, man. Well, Chris, I want to be respectful of your time. It's uh, This has been great, though. I love the just the, the geeking out and the nitty gritty of the suspension, you know, <laughs> I always learned something from these and I hope everyone listening did too. So people want to check you out. It's, uh, say your, your Instagram again, your website is. It's suspension dash formulas.com. Same on Instagram. Um, With the dash. Link, uh, yeah. It's the, like whatever the lower, like his Instagram doesn't allow you to do dash. Uh, the, it's the, like the, the under, the underscore under, underscore thing. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see it's, you know, my, my mug on the picture doing something dumb or something. <laughs> and, uh, I'll, I'll link on there to the new brand when I release it. I'd, I'd like to do proper press releases, but I'm one of those guys waiting for a Tyler to call me up and be like, dude, what's the, what's the skinny? And <laughs> then I'll, I'll, like, I'll hey, be sure right, to check in with course. you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for the time. And I, I appreciate you like letting me geek out on all this stuff. Cause yeah. Oh, I love it. I love talking about bike suspension racing. You know, anybody out there that wants my help or whatever, just hit me up. I'm always down for a, a, a cheeky phone call at least. So cool. Well, and if you're heading out to the Enduro Racers, the downhills, they might see you at the starting line too. Oh, yeah. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. 
That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.